Lucky listeners out there in earbud land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John. I'm your host, John, and my guest this time is country artist India Ramey. You may recall from my episodes with Maria Taylor that Maria went to the same magnet art school that I did, the Alabama School of Fine Arts. Well, the same is true of India, and like Maria, India actually studied dance at that school, so she was a ballet dancer before becoming a musician. Unlike Maria, India became a lawyer in between uh, those two things, as you do, and um, we're going to hear about that. It'll all make sense. Before we get into it, though, one technical note. Um, At the time we recorded this episode, it was right around the time of India's album release for her fourth album, Shallow Graves. So her home office was kind of a hive of activity, and there's some background noise. That is one of two things. Either it's her husband, Sean, sitting at his desk and banging around on a computer, or it is a pole cat uh, in a cardboard box trying to escape. Um, And if you're about to say, what if it's both? I've considered that. Anyway, this is India. He's a wolf. In the cloak of the sheep, and he preys on the fearful and the weak. I wrote all this material so long ago, like some of the material I wrote four years ago, and I intended to put the album out before now. I intended to put it out last year, and um, it just took us longer to finish the album because of various different factors. And it took us a little bit longer to to actually get it out. And when we decided to, okay, this is our timeline, it's like everything that was going on in the world hit at the same time that made these songs and this material just eerily timely in in a way that I, I didn't intend. It just sort of happened that way. When I wrote King of the Ashes four years ago, it was after Donald Trump was elected president and I was really scared and and really upset. And when I wrote it, I I was writing about how it felt to, you know, to wake up that morning after Election Day and see, you know, see it, see the the bad things unfold that, that you were afraid would happen um, however, when I, when I wrote it, I, I had, even I, the, the soothsayer that I can be, I, I had, I had no idea that it would be as bad as it is, um, all these years, like four years later. Like I knew it was going to be bad, but I couldn't see it being as bad as it is right now. Yeah. The, the timeliness even extends to the video that you did for it, which, which definitely feels like it's a comment on, on people's current state, uh, or at least many people's current state of, of being cooped up at home. We filmed the video for King of the Ashes in my basement because, um, it was like right when COVID happened and, um, 
we had we had a whole different plan, a whole different storyboard for the video, and it involved a bunch of people and green screens and all that kind of stuff, and we couldn't do that anymore. So um, I ordered one of those GoPro things, and my husband, Sean, figured out how to work it. <laughs> we filmed it in the basement and then just got you know, fans and friends to submit their own videos and edit them together. Um, but, uh, yeah, like King of the Ashes was one that, that, that was our first single that, that we pushed from the album. And it wasn't originally intended to be the first single. I think we were going to push out Up to No Good. Was that what we were doing? Um, Sean's in the room with me. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, I just, I felt so passionately about King of the Ashes. I, went to my manager and, and said, I really think that this one needs to come out first. And he agreed. So yeah, we're, we're pushing it. And I, I wish that everybody could hear it because I, I, I just, I think it's important, um, for, for people to get out and vote and not, not let this happen again, save our democracy and whatnot. And whatnot. <laughs> yeah. And, and all that yada yada. You are the first guest on this show to have a successful law career before uh, focusing on music. And um, you've expressed to me in the past that it was important to you to shift gears like that. Uh, but I've always been curious, was it the kind of thing where you were just chugging along and you just hit a wall one day and said, I can't do this anymore? Or, or did it creep up on you over years? Like, did you kind of suspect all along that maybe you were pursuing um, the wrong career for you? Um, it was both. Um, and, and I think that I knew, like, first year of law school, I, I, I went into it with such, you know, high expectation and hope. And I was so excited because I was very, and I'm very competitive with myself and I'm, uh, an overachiever. And I was very into achieving. And when I got there and started really digging into the material, I realized how bored I was. And how uninspired I was. Um, but I, you know, I'm not a quitter. So <laughs> I finished it and tried to, tried to find ways to love it. And I just didn't, I didn't love it. And your anxiety level is so high when you're a practicing attorney. There are so many deadlines and there are so many expectations from so many different people, judges, your boss, your clients. And you're constantly, you know, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my God, did I forget to file so-and-so or what's this deadline? And when your anxiety level is like that, there's no room for creativity. And as a creative, um, I suffered like I, my soul was suffering without being able to be creative. And and I had I it took me a long time to admit to myself that I am a creative because I spent so many years trying not to be because it was told to me that if you're a creative, well, you're not, you're going to be poor. And I grew up poor <laughs> and I didn't want to be poor. And, and I, so I was always trying to deny the fact that I was a creative and, and, you know, you can't do that. If something is that, much of a part of of you that does speak to some kind of weird 
it's in the bones thing. Some part of you just knew that you weren't happy doing that, even if you hadn't yet fully like scouted out what it was that you would be happy doing. You know, some part of you knew that you, it wasn't this. Yeah, no, I, I knew it wasn't that because I, I didn't want to wake up in the mornings. And, and for, I don't know, maybe a, three solid years, I called my mother on my way to work to my law office crying every morning. And and together, you know, like my mom pointed out, she was like, man, you're just, you're just not happy. <laughs> and I was like, no, I hate it. I hate it. And, and I like I'm good at it. But um. I just, I just hated it. And, and since I walked away from it and since I've been pursuing music, I have, I have a happiness inside of me that I never knew I could have. I'm really grateful that I get to do it. When you did start writing your own songs, did it surprise you that you had so much to say? Well, it kind of did take me by surprise. Like I, I dabbled in some songwriting when, when I was in law school, just to kind of like keep, get my mind somewhere else. But, but there were really like, I, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> they were really terrible songs. But um, when I, when I was singing with the cover band, I was, I was really feeling that material because we were doing like a lot of Gillian Welch and um, Nico Case and stuff like that. And it was just stuff that like, it was a lot of like bluegrass and roots influence, which is, you know, in my DNA because my grandfather was a bluegrass musician and it just felt like home. So I, I was playing with them and singing with them so much to where I kind of, I got kind of tired of singing other people's stuff because I felt like there was some things that I wanted to say. So when I was at my law job, um, th and this was like around the time that the economy was taking a downturn, like around 2008, 2009, so we didn't have a lot going on at the law office because, you know, the economy was bad. And so I had a like a lot of time in the afternoon after I would do my work, get my motions filed and all that stuff where I still needed to look busy. So <laughs> I, um, started writing songs like on my, just typing them on my computer and like, you know, kind of singing to myself in my head. And I played piano growing up, but, um, I hadn't played it in years by the time I started writing songs. So I just sort of like had the music in my head while I was writing the words. And then I would go out to my car and like, this was before you could like, this, this was like when I had a Blackberry and I would, I would go out to my car and I would call my mom and, and I would say, I'm going to call you back and don't pick up. I'm going to leave this melody on your, on your answering machine. And so I would like sing, sing the song into her answering machine so that I could preserve it. And then I would just like sing it and sing it, sing it all the way home until I could get to some manner of recording and just kind of memorize it. It's so funny, those things you have to do, because if you've ever thought you're going to remember it, this is too good, I won't forget it. You will forget it, and you will 
you will never know yeah. what you lost. You know what I mean? Like You'll never forgive yourself. No, you won't. I still can think of times where it's like, I can remember where I was standing uh, when I when I was like, what was that again? Oh, crap. But anyway, I think it's an interesting thing, like the way that you try not to lose those little ideas that kind of come fluttering through your head. And then you decide to make them into real songs. Was that a pretty natural progression with the musicians you were working with to say, how about if uh, I bring in songs? The guy that played pedal steel with uh, the cover band, what his name is William Barnes, and he was starting to do some producing on his own. And so I went to him separately and said, will you help me put music to these songs? And I think I'd like to record them. And um, so we would meet at his house after work, and I would sing the songs to him, and he would kind of pick out the chords on the guitar because um, I had just started playing guitar, so I wasn't good enough to to do. Like I still didn't. I was still learning chords, so I didn't know what I was doing. And um, he, so he helped me pick out the chords. And um, he's sort of that first album is his as much as it is mine creatively, because I just sort of gave him carte blanche on the arrangements. When I first started writing, I think I was trying to write more like some kind of like indie rock stuff, but every time every time I would sit down to write a song, it would just come out country. So I just decided not to fight it. I was like, well, this is, <laughs> this is the way it comes out of me. And with that first album, you know, I was presently like I was singing with a bluegrass cover band. So it, it, that's just sort of where I was then. Full disclosure, like I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just writing and singing and having fun, having fun with my music. Girl was pretty much like it wasn't the first song I ever wrote, but it's it was the first like real song I ever wrote that wasn't like crappy or just like like it was the first bona fide song I ever wrote. And I I wrote it when I was um I w I had to go to court when I, I was still practicing law and I had to go to court um up on Sam Mountain where my granddaddy and my grandma are from. And um, I stopped at a, a meet and three restaurant and got some okra and, you know, fried corn and, <laughs> and all that stuff. It tastes like my grandma's food. And I just really was reminiscing about my grandparents and how much I love Sand Mountain. And I started thinking about 
um, their wedding picture is, is a picture of the two of them standing on the roadside in Sand Mountain and their covered wagon, or my granddad called it a buggy. It was a horse-drawn buggy, um, was behind them. And they, they met the preacher on the side of the road and he married them and then they went to the, their marital home that they had, um, gotten. And my grandma's holding just one little flower and it's just a treasured thing and in my family. And I decided to write a song about how they met and married up there. And, uh, so I sat down, wrote it down on a legal pad in my car and called my mom <laughs> and recorded it on her answering machine. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I've, I've just, I've always been real proud of that one because it's a tribute to those two beautiful people. It was sometime later that Something I really like about your first album, Junkyard Angel, is the fact that it is kind of a, a grab bag uh, of different styles and feels of song. Like, um, it's got an upbeat, pretty love song like Redheaded Girl, but there's also this kind of classically mournful uh, song, Don't Tell Me It Was Just the Whiskey, that has a completely different vibe to it. I wrote that about my father, who is not a nice man. I wrote it about, um, an actual incident where, um, I hadn't seen my father in 15 years and, uh, I'd gone to court to get custody of my younger sister from him. And he tried to feed me a line of bullshit about, you know, I'm sorry about abusing your mom and not being there for you girls and all that stuff. And he, he made excuses like he always did. And, and he said, he said, you know, I'm not like that anymore, baby. I, uh, that was back during my whiskey drinking days. <laughs> and I just thought that that was the most absurd, absurdly outlaw country bullshit that he could, yeah. that he could muster to say to my face. And um, so I wrote, don't tell me it was just the whiskey. I think I'm most probably most proud of that song than any of the ones on that album don't tell me you're sorry don't tell me that you love me don't tell me sort of approached it in a way like when you're when you first hear the song it doesn't sound like I'm talking about my father it sounds like a woman talking about a lover that has cheated on her or done her wrong 
And then it's not until the bridge that it's really revealed that it's a father and a daughter. Probably everybody's felt that way in one way or the other, whether or not it was a familial relationship or whether it was a friend or a lover. Um, you know, we've all been hurt and we've all had to, we've all been confronted with bullshit excuses like it was just the whiskey. <laughs> right. Yeah. The kind of thing where you think you didn't even, you didn't even practice that one on the way over, did you? You don't, that doesn't hold any water at all. <laughs> I've waited 15 years to hear that shit. <laughs> right, yeah, you had that much lead up, and that's that was it. Okay, good job. <laughs> and, and another interesting aspect of that is the fact that, um, at least as inferred by me, if it were just the whiskey, the narrator of that song would probably be a, a bit more forgiving because with regards to the outlaw country stuff, that hard-charging personality is present on, on other songs on the album. I guess the one I'm really thinking of is One More Shot. Joy and I, we became best friends at Birmingham Southern College, and we both share just a white hot passion for outlaw country and um, spent a lot of time drinking natural light beer and um, Jim Beam listening to Waylon and Willie and all that and singing along. And I just, I kind of wanted to write a song um, to celebrate my friendship with her and and that love for that style of music. And I kind of, in my mind, went back to Jackie's Lounge in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I drank a lot of whiskey and listened to a lot of Waylon Jennings um, during my law school days. And um, just kind of, just kind of wrote about that, you know, blowing off steam and um, getting totally wasted in a, nasty old honky-tonk with wood paneling and a window air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> if you can have that image in your head and not instantly have like an associated hangover flashback, then I, I tip my hat to you. It actually makes me gag a little bit. <laughs>
actually make that switch from practicing law to doing music full time? I think it was before the first album was out. It was 2009. I got laid off. And um, we were, I was finishing Junkyard Angel, and William, the guy who produced it, knew this guy in Texas. He's Bonnie Wright's sound engineer. His name is Pappy Middleton. And he suggested that we go out there to mix it because Pappy has the original soundboard from Abbey Road. He, like, William really wanted to get in and spend some time with Pappy and work in his studio and he thought that this was a good project to do it on. So I um, begged my very sweet, supportive husband to do this with me. And um, we drove out there, me and Sean and William and our dog, Daisy, and stayed with Pappy for a week and mixed it out there. And Pappy said, you know, he was asking me, he was like, so are you gigging? Are you touring? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know, nothing. <laughs> and um, he was like, well, are you looking for another law job? And I was like, yes, sir. I'm looking real hard and I just, I can't find anything right now. And he was like, well, maybe don't do that because I, like, I think that you've got a good thing here and I think that you're going to get better the more you do it. And I think that you're talented and you're still young. So, you know, you could be a lawyer whenever, but why don't you give it a shot? And I'm in Nashville now, <laughs> and and I'm giving it a shot. So the second album, Blood Crescent Moon, comes out in uh, 2013, uh, and to my ear, it's a little bit darker and and maybe more mature and, and slightly less traditional in terms of the kind of country music that it is. Uh, what do you think are the differences between uh, Junkyard Angel and Blood Crescent Moon? I had a lot more control over Blood Crescent Moon because I was spending a lot of time just writing, like. All, like completely on my own like nobody was helping me at that point and um, so I had taken control over uh, my craft and and I was really focusing on doing making the sounds and telling the stories that I wanted to that that I definitely would like to hear on the radio if I was just a listener and um, so I, I feel like I sort of was figuring out, I was finding my own voice going into Blood Crescent Moon. And I wasn't there yet. Like, I, I don't think that I arrived at any sort of like a identity with Blood Crescent Moon, but I think that it was definitely the transition into me taking control over what kind of sound I was gonna make. My producer on that one, Brian Irwin, was very good about listening to me. And, and he was definitely still the producer, but he listened to me and, and asked me my opinions and ran everything by me. And so I, I was given an opportunity to just really be involved from the very beginning to the very end.
There is a real confidence to the material on, on Blood Crescent Moon. You really hear it in a song like Wildfire. Wildfire. So I don't know. Have you ever put out an album and then like a, a year or two later, you, you like look back on it and you're like, damn it. Like, I wish that I had named it a different name and I wish that the album cover looked different. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I've had so many forms of that where I just think, okay, whatever I was so sure of, when I made this call, I should have thought about it another minute, or I should have gone with my other gut instinct. You know, there's there's always a point where you remember the, what the better idea was, and you didn't do it. So you know, I've definitely tortured myself like that. What what is your uh, what is your regret that you're referring to? I wish that I had named the album Wildfire, and I even had like this really cool album cover concept because there actually had been some some fires in Alabama at the time where I was living. And I wanted to like sit like sit in a chair with my guitar in one of those burned fields on the side of the road and in a red dress and just like nice and simple wildfire. And I like some of my buddies that were around me and were supportive and very excited about what I was doing. They're like, No, no, like you really need to, you need to name this album Blood Crescent Moon. That's so cool. <laughs> You'd be like running around in your nightgown and in the woods. <laughs> well, let's talk about the story of empowerment across your album covers, because the first album cover, Junkyard Angel, you're just sort of a nice girl standing around. You're sort of like, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in front of a fence or a signpost or something. You're just kind of hanging yeah. out. Second, when you're in a nightgown, you're out running around in the dark. It seems like maybe something's chasing you. <laughs> Third one, you're taking a bath with snakes, right? So it's essentially the devil. So you're you're bathing with Satan. And then this new one, you appear to be some kind of post-apocalyptic heroine. Uh, at least that's the way I read the cover of the new one. So that's a pretty cool arc. Wildfire was like my first uh, dipping my toe in that sort of like baritone guitar sounding swaggery western feel that mm -hmm. that I like. You know, like it's it. I like Tarantino and um, that like that kind of like dark western feel. So uh, when I and I, when I wrote that song, my friend Brian Bostic gave me some um inspiration to write that song because I, I think i had entered some of my songs in some contests and didn't get shit and i was mad because i thought i was a really good songwriter <laughs> i was mad because i wasn't getting shit and these philistines he was like you should write a song about it like write it write a song about like the people that just don't get it so that's what i wrote wildfire about another key track uh that you selected from blood crescent moon is the song get behind me satan i've always just thought that that was just a really funny phrase and you hear it a lot in the south um you know when you want to punch somebody in the face but you you're trying to be right with god you just say get behind me satan when i was a kid i used to hear things like that so often growing up in Alabama, that like, I had all these visions of this kind of uh, stereotypical Satan figure, like the red suit with the, I mean, literally, I pictured the guy from the deviled ham packaging. 
And I found him horrifying, but I realize now that my image of him too was was faintly ridiculous. And I do think you put a spin on the the saying, because um, usually when people say "get behind me, Satan," they they mean, like you said, they're being tempted to do something that they they know they probably shouldn't uh, do. But um, in the song, it sounds much more like the person is saying, "All right, Satan, I know you're here to punish this person as well, but you're going to have to get in line behind me because I'm doing it first. Yeah, it's the it's the twist that was the fun part to to sort of craft around that that little colloquialism to. To make it a little bit, take it in a little bit different direction than you're used to hearing it. It seems like w- whether it's in a playful way, like it is on that song, or if it's a little bit more uh, serious, uh, the way it is on your next album that I think we're about to start talking about, uh, Snake Handler. Uh, religious themes are are important to your work. Whenever I'm writing, like whenever I'm pulling religion, especially into things, it's 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 real. Like it's just having grown up in the deep South and you're just surrounded by it everywhere you go. Like everybody you talk to, it's just religion gets used for, um, greed and, and for, for power and personal satisfaction. And that I've been around it my whole life in the South. I've been around that, that, um, hypocrisy and, um, I'm a big uh, Flannery O'Connor fan, and Flannery O'Connor writes a lot about that that brand of hypocrisy. So it's just always on the tip of my tongue whenever I'm telling a story. The definitely know this but listeners might not um that the the very real very strange practice of uh, snake handling as part of a religious service it, it has its origins in in appalachia and relatively recently you know only in the last 150 years or so there have been pastors that have died from being bit by a ground rattler <laughs> while they're preaching a sermon and uh and it's you know it's it that 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 whole theology that they've developed is is just it's another one of those examples where you know you cherry pick a 
couple of scriptures from the Bible um, where this kind of thing is mentioned, and it's meant to be allegory. It's meant to be metaphor. But, you know, some folks don't haven't been exposed to allegory and metaphor that hasn't been explained to them. So they take it literally and they think that when it says in Mark that, that you can take up serpents and you can drink poisons and you will not be harmed because the Lord is with you, they think it's literal and, and it's not. And, you know, and some of them get bit and they die. And I don't really know how they explain that to their parishioners um, after that happened. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oops. I don't know how they're like, well, you know, Brother Billy. Uh, he got bit. I guess his faith wasn't very strong. <laughs> Instant feedback from the universe. That, it's just always fascinated me that, that that's the, the choice, uh, you know, how people choose to worship. And, um, I mean, and they, they, you know, they bring in, like, all these, like, instruments. To, like, they, they have, like, it's almost like rock music. They play like electric guitars and jump around. It's, it's actually kind of metal. Um, <laughs> if you watch the videos, uh, and you know, there's like little old ladies dancing around with these um, copperheads and things. But just always fascinated me, and I, it's so dark to me. I wanted to write a song about it, and it sort of took over the whole brand of the album. <laughs> deals with that idea of the sort of religious snake handler we were just talking about, the person who is 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 going to get bitten by poisonous snakes and sort of hope that their religious zealotry is going to save them, when in fact, there's no reason to think it would. But it also has this narrator in the song who I sort of take her at her word when she says that the poisons don't affect her. So it's a little bit like some kind of real old world magic is, is meeting the fraudulent kind, or even that there's just a different kind of snake handling going on that this narrator is uh, talking about. You're totally spot on. There's, there's layers to, to the way I wrote that song. Like it, it, and the first layer is just in what we talked about. It's about the snake, the, the pastor that takes up the serpents for whatever righteous indignation he has. But the other layer is, is me with the, the snakes in my head like, and I have a lot because, um, I have PTSD and, um, a, a lot of, a lot of self doubt. We all have a lot of self doubt. And, um, so I, I have a lot of snakes in my head that I grapple with. And so it's, it's about me taking up those snakes and, and reckoning with them and, um, and not letting them take me down. And the third layer is the, toxic people in your life that come and go 
And, um, you know, sometimes you got to exercise those demons and cast out those serpents as well to stay healthy and be true to yourself. So it's, it's kind of a, a layered song. Devil's Blood is another one that kind of connects back to that biblical idea. And again, that's a phrase you might have heard when you were a kid, and I would have heard that, and I would have taken it semi-realistically, like when I was really little, if they said that person has the devil's blood in them, I would have known they meant that person is just, you know, bad. But I also would have, on some level, thought, oh, God, how does my grandmother know about this crazy satanic lineage? (laughs) Right? You're like, oh, my God, it's Rosemary's baby. Right. Why is nobody doing anything about this kid? (laughs) apologize to my audiences for all the daddy issues that I have but if you ever met my dad you'd understand why I have so much material but um that I wrote that about my father and and what it's like to be his daughter because um so much of my life has been spent trying not to be anything like him because he was so bad and yet I you know go through life with the knowledge that his blood is in my veins and there are so many things about me that are like him. Like I I have his eyes. My eyes are almost black. They're so dark brown. And he, his eyes were like that too. And, um, you know, he was kind of a hell raiser and, and I have that element of my personality too. Is it about occasionally giving into it or is it about just fighting it constantly tooth and nail? Both. It's about fighting it constantly tooth and nail, but you know, sometimes no matter how hard you fight it, it's there. No matter what you do, it's always there. And here's something funny about that song too. I was when I was writing it, I was trying to figure out something funky to do on the guitar just to give it a different sound and I've been listening to a lot of Patty, a lot of Patty Griffin and she has this really cool riff on um please don't let me die in Florida and um and it's way beyond my guitar playing capability because it's Patty Griffin but I was tr- I was trying to get there you know and so like I was sort of doing like these hammer-ons on the guitar and I came up with that little riff in the beginning that's kind of dissonant and I didn't even know if it was a chord. I was like, well, shit, that sounds weird. I'm going to throw that in there. And um, one of these days I'll get the courage up to ask somebody if that's actually a chord. And and I did years later. Like, I, I wrote that song a long time ago. And um, when I got up here in Nashville, I got with a real good guitar teacher because I, I always, I always want to keep learning and improving and getting better. And um, I played that song for him, and I was like, hey, is this like, I'm real embarrassed to ask you this, but is this a chord? And he said, oh, yeah. He was like, that was known as the devil's chord in medieval music. Because it was so dissonant, the churches back in medieval times outlawed that chord being played whatsoever because it was so dissonant. And they called it the devil's chord. And I was like, well, that is really convenient because this song is called Devil's Blood. (laughs) You know who's trying to speak through you? 
You be careful. Right? Hey, guys, this really cool thing called the Devil's Court just came to me almost like in a dream last night. Now I can't stop playing it. Yeah, like I, <laughs> you know, and then my head spun around and I threw up green stuff. And <laughs> running all of my life. I've been running all my days. I could run until the end of time, but I'll never get away. because the devil's blood's running in my veins. And then, and then I was, I was working out the harmonies to it. Um, and I, I'm friends with this wonderful, um, voice teacher and harmony coach. Her name is Susan Anders. And she was kind of helping me work out some really interesting harmonies for it. And, um, she went to the piano to figure out there was one note that we couldn't get. And she played it on the piano and she said, that's the devil's note. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a totally, it wasn't the same chord. It was a different note. And she was like, told me this lineage of like how they wouldn't let, they wouldn't play that one in churches either. And I was like, oh, it's funny because this song's called Bell's Blood. So, um, I'm starting to have some thoughts about you, India. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a dark little thing. Well, aside from the uh, possible participation of the Prince of Lies, what stands out to you when you look back at uh, Snake Handler? With Snake Handler, I felt like I, I had fi- found my voice finally. I felt like I felt like I was um, a better songwriter at that point, and I had more of a plan as, as when I was approaching my my art and and crafting those songs like I I felt um more focused and it was um it was really cool to to get to do that album here in Nashville and to and to get to do it with Mark Patasha because he had had a part in making so many gorgeous records that I loved one of them being Southeastern by Jason Isbell which is one of my favorite albums of all time and um, he really honed in on that, this sort of like deep south rural uh, swampiness that I was bringing to him. Do your church bells still ring underneath a liquid sky as the sun? Town is about the Tennessee Valley Authority man-made lakes um, in, in the area where I grew up. I grew up on Lake Weiss, um, part of part of my growing up, and um, 
it's just, it's about how, you know, that area of Alabama, um, Northeast Alabama was, um, you know, so rural and it was mostly farms and that they, that area was sort of behind, um, everybody and, and making progress and industry and having any kind of hope of being part of the, the larger economy. And when the Tennessee Valley Authority came in and flooded, they, they dammed up the rivers and, and flooded the, the farmlands, they, um, they put that area on the grid. They brought power to that area where they could have um, more industry and, and more prosperity and um, I, I did some reading about those lakes and underneath those, a lot of those lakes in Alabama and up here in Tennessee, there are entire towns under those lakes that had names and they were on the map and they had schools and churches and businesses and the Tennessee Valley Authority came in and, and relocated everybody, you know, to other places. And those towns are still there. Like if you were went scuba diving, um, you know, in North Alabama, you could see these actual structures that once had life in them. And the Tennessee Valley Authority also came in when they came in to move everybody out of these towns before they flooded it, they would offer to exhume the bodies of loved ones and they would send, you know, a couple of people in a black car and exhume the body of, you know, Mima or Papa and put them in the back of the car and take them up the mountain and put them in the ground there. And a lot of those areas um, around where I grew up, when the water goes down in the wintertime, you can see outlines of graves of the people that didn't get moved to higher ground. And the whole imagery to me of places that were full of life and, and motion and um, energy just sitting under all of that water is eerily beautiful to me. So I just wanted to paint that picture. The marble headstones still stand Whether forgotten Rest their bones Lost in time Their spirits Through your murky boulevards Still wrong So we have one more song that we need to talk about from Snake Handler before we move on to the latest record. What can you tell me about saying goodbye? I wrote that song about the day that I went to see my father on his deathbed. Wow. And um, it was it was a really weird day because I hated him and I thought that I would be happy when he died because he was... I mean, he, he drove everybody crazy and he was a criminal and he was abusive and just a toxic person. But, um, I was really sad. I was heartbroken and I had 
compassion for him that I never thought that I would. And I was overwhelmed by it. And um, I went to see him in the nursing home where he was. And he couldn't communicate because he was kind of semi-comatose. And I told him that I forgave him and that I loved him and made peace with him as best I could and felt a connection with him that I never never felt before probably because he wasn't able to talk I didn't want to but I Like, you know, like in Stranger Things when they go in the upside down and there's like that powdery stuff floating around in the, in the air and uh, the walls look weird. And that's what it felt like when I was going to that nursing home to see him. And I was just on adrenaline. In the studio, Mark had this baritone guitar and he got Joey Fletcher, my guitar player at the time, to go in the booth and he hooked it up to this weird nasty um, pedal and just had Joey play like some slide on it and just made all these weird sounds and it started coming out of the speakers and I said that sound is what my brain felt like that day and he was like all right let's do it <laughs> and um, it I I don't like playing that song live because it makes me cry Like, I played that song in a brewery in North Carolina, and there's like five people in the room, and this one woman, like, got up and ran to the bathroom sobbing in the middle of it, and that made me want to start sobbing. I was like, fuck. <laughs> like, why am I doing this to people? This poor woman came out to have a beer. 
Yeah. <laughs> and now she's crying in the bathroom and her husband's confused and, you know, but at the same time, the only way I can get any peace with these things is to write about it. Yeah, you know the songs on uh, "Shallow Graves" are, um, are are just bigger in some way, or, or at least it feels that way to me. I mean, your storytelling has always been strong, but but um, these are just like little movies from the from the sound design to the lyrics. Uh, was that something you were thinking about? Uh, you know, doing something more cinematic? Well, it sort of was. Like, I, I mean, I wrote I wrote the songs and sent them like. As I finished them, I would send them to Mark because I knew that I wanted to do another album with him. And um, when we got on, you know, we got like, I think we had like 12 or 13 songs. Um, Only 10 made it. But when we got them all together, we had a meeting and, and he was like, so he was like, I don't know where you are on this, but. I want to do something a little bit bigger than what we did on Snake Handler. Like I want it to, I want this to be kind of big. And I was like, yes, me too. (laughs) And so he was sort of, I was hearing it that way as well. And I, and I really wanted it to be cinematic because I, I just, since I like, since I had written King of the Ashes, I just had this imagery of this post-apocalyptic Western scorched earth, sort of setting and um i wanted that to come through and he really helped me dial into that and pick out those elements you know like i was like baritone guitar all of it all the time the more the better (laughs) like load me up your lyrics tend to get the point across pretty clearly and and the force with which you sing them is is almost you know it's almost it's pretty uniform that you're really belting these songs so they just always come across with that level of i don't know power or something and i think it gives you when you're singing about apocalyptic stuff in that style and then the music has got this moody kind of weird almost soundscape quality to it the music is a little bit scary and a little bit serious and and you know a little bit hopeful in some spots too so i think that's an interesting blend big fan of you and me against the world and because um, I feel like that has a lot of imagery in it too and the same type of imagery that that I wanted to you know I wanted to go with um, you know like the the cover of the album is 
a take from the Louis L'Amour westerns that my granddaddy used to read. Mm -hmm. I was sort of like bringing all that together into one um, concept. And um, I wrote You and Me Against the World for my husband because um, I... I had written a, one song before for him previously on my first album, and it is the worst song I have ever written in my career of songwriting. And What don't you like about it? <laughs> oh, God, it's just garbage. It's just like romantic gobbledygook. And after I wrote it and I put it on that album, I, uh, on Junkyard Angel, I was like, I'm never writing another love song again. I suck at it. I don't know why, but I I cannot write love songs. And generally, I don't like love songs. Like there there are a few that I love, but generally, I think that they're garbage. And so I was like, "Fuck it, I'm never writing another love song again." And when I was writing this body of work, I, I was like, you know, damn it, I've never, I've never been a quitter and I'm not going to stand down from a challenge. I'm going to write a fucking love song and I'm going to write a good one. <laughs> and I'll write it for Sean because he deserves it because he's awesome. And, um, and so I wrote you and me against the world and I'm really proud of it because it doesn't suck. <laughs> So what other songs on uh, Shallow Graves stand out to you or make you proud in some way? We, me and Sean, my husband, and my manager, Brad, who's like, we, we refer to him as our son, Brad, because he's with us all the time. <laughs> he's our best friend. And um, we're, we're big fans of The Witch. It's a little bit more metal than the rest of the, <laughs> the album, but um, we dig it real hard. A breakfast. that song about my panic disorder that can be debilitating sometimes and uh, I was having a really bad bout with it when I wrote that song and you know just like everything else I'm like well if I'm gonna cope with it I've got to write about it so I, I sat down and wrote it she'll creep in the bed rest and choke you in your sleep First of all, I'm, I've personified my panic disorder into this witch that um, just like the shadowy figure that follows me around and torments me all day, every day. And there's the line in the chorus that she'll make you feel like you're dying every day that you're alive. And I can't 
I can't think of a better description of what it feels like to have anxiety than that. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm having a really bad bout with it right now. And, um, it, and it's, it's, it's just the scariest thing. Even, even though they tell you it's not going to kill you, it's really hard to believe it in the moment. You know, I, I was really glad that, that I could paint that picture because a, a lot of people don't understand it and they think that you're being a drama queen or it's all in your head and they, they don't realize how much physiology there is involved in panic disorder and anxiety attacks. It, it's like having a chronic illness of your brain and your body. You know, talking about The Witch has made me think of something else that I want to say, which is that I think this album has a nice flow to it. Uh, it's it's well sequenced. Like having a track like The Witch at number three and then having King of the Ashes sort of closer to the end. <laughs> Sean is very proud of himself right now because he sequences all of my albums and he really appreciates the shout out. He went through several drafts. He's very proud. <laughs> is, is he a playlist maker as well? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I highly recommend his Halloween mix. <laughs> it is how many hours long now, sweetie? About eight. It's about eight hours long. All right. He curates it year round so um <laughs> he's always working on it and it and it is truly i mean like no joke it is badass like it is the best halloween mix ever so it's on spotify sean ramey s-h-a-u-n follow his playlist well thank you so much uh for doing this india thank you thanks for taking the time to do this with me it's good to talk to you it's been a long time yeah <laughs> I think the last time you saw me, I was drunk at our class reunion, so I'm glad you got to hear me talk sober. <laughs> yeah, sadly, I was leaving as you arrived. We just kind of spoke uh, in passing. We were weren't. Yeah, you were very friendly, and I remember thinking, like, damn, that seems like a good time. Why am I, why am I leaving? <laughs> I made Sean wear a tuxedo. <laughs> See, that's how you do it, though. We looked like the magic act that they hired to perform it. Sorry. <laughs> 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 not not my finest hour so i'm i'm glad that i'm glad that we got to spend this time together i'm glad that someone finally used the word weren't on this show <laughs> <laughs> you've laid your sins in shallow graves you've wiped the dirt off your hands and walked away there's not enough perfume in the world that stink gets louder every day somebody knows If you really want to support an independent artist like India, remember, buy a physical copy and play her on all your favorite streamers like Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play. I know you can do it. You can follow India on Instagram at IndiaRamiMusic and on Twitter at IndiaRamy. You can also check out her shop at IndiaRamy.com to, I don't know, buy some vinyl, buy some merch. There's some cool stuff over there. 
As for me, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at GianniW. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And remember, if you want more episodes of this podcast and others like it, just look for F-Y-I-Z on your favorite podcatcher app. Okay, that's all. I think I need to go call an exorcist. Exorcist.